Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, Lockdown Special. We are coming at you from Spain, the Netherlands and Dundalk in lovely Ireland for another edition of uh, a trip down nostalgia lane as we look back to one of the vintage Grand Prix seasons of yesteryear. Now this episode is going to be about 2015, quite an uneventful year as most of you can uh, can remember <laughs> quite well in the recent past and uh, well I'm delighted to say that I'm not going to be alone as I walk down memory lane. I have two very well respected journalists, broadcasters alongside me, well not quite alongside me but somewhere uh, in the uh, internet realms. That is one Mr. David Emmett of motomatters.com. Hi David. Hello there Neil. And Mr. Stephen English, uh, World Superbike commentator extraordinaire. Uh, Steve, how are you doing? Not so bad, Neil. Nice. And uh, your back is uh, back in back in line. You're able to stand up. Uh, yeah. Well, I've had a, I've had a week of uh, being pretty much in agony with my back, but it seems like it's all right now, so can get back to normal. Oh, nice pun there. I like that, Steve. Good work. Uh, well, well, in fairness, Neil, th- this was the year I worked for MCN, so writing puns was very important at the time. <laughs> yes how many war headlines did you get that year um well to be honest there was only one that i tried to use and didn't actually get uh, included i wanted to have rossi's orange march after his dutch victory but that was solely because we were coming up a marching season back in northern ireland and i thought it'd be hilarious right so uh well i think you've uh you've already uh made the point, Steve, as to why this season uh, stands out in your memory. Obviously, uh, this was a pretty uh, momentous year for yourself, working uh, as a full-time paid member of the MotoGP paddock for the first time. And uh, what a year you chose to do that. Yeah, I was really lucky. That was the first year, as you said, Neil, full-time. We went to every test, every race. And uh, it was a great year. It was a year that I'll never forget, just from a personal perspective and then obviously from a racing perspective, because 2015 was terrific. We had tons of action at most races. We had three manufacturers that were all competitive. We had riders that were fighting with one another. We had riders that were doing their best to form alliances with one another and uh, we just had drama all the way it was a good year to pick to have as a first full-time year and much the same for yourself Neil absolutely yeah, I can attest to that Steve and uh, well I'd like to just say that I think if you take the the whole polemic end of the year away from it I, I still reckon that this is probably the most intense dramatic up and down championship fight between two genuinely great riders that that we've ever seen um david what about you how does this season rank for you and uh, what kind of special memories do you have of 2015 aside yeah, from I'll, getting to know me and steve very well obviously yeah obviously apart from getting to uh, enjoy you know, the company of two two fine irishmen um i was looking back through my notes and it's almost a shame that uh, the thing that 2015 is remembered for is the whole Sepang clash nonsense because there was so much drama. There was just absolutely so much going on almost every single round and just the, all the weird stuff like, uh, you know, the uh, Danny Pedrosa's arm pump surgery and Casey Stoner and God knows what else and all of this stuff which I'd sort of almost completely forgotten about. So uh, it was almost, when you go through race by race, you think, oh yeah, that happened there and that happened there. And it's just, uh, it, it was um, it was an absolutely fascinating season. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, when you look back on this year, 
it's actually really difficult to try and pinpoint, all right, well, this was the pivotal moment. Oh, no, it was actually this race because for so many different riders we had Davi really strong at the start and then his season fell apart after you know a third of the season Ian One suddenly became Ducati's leader you had Marquez looking really fast but making lots of mistakes the Honda was so difficult for him you had Lorenzo struggle at times if you think to the early rounds of the year and then suddenly it came good the first time he led the championship was the last lap of the season and it was just a year where, you know, one thing after the other. And as you said, David, it's a shame that people remember this season just for Sepang because there was so much more to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was it was just a fantastic, uh, it really was a, a fantastic season with drama uh, and also pivotal in lots of other ways as well, politically and in terms of uh, uh, technically, in terms of uh, what would go on to be, uh, you know the modern MotoGP era, or the you know the 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 Michelin and Spec ECU era. So there's just so much to yeah, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, as you say, David, so much to talk about. So let's uh, let's get started on our roundup of 2015. This is going to be a two-part uh, adventure for us. We're going to do the first part, uh, which will take us through to the first part of the season, the first half of the season, and then we'll come back next week with the, the second and final installment of 2015. There was that much drama that we cannot fit it all in to one show, dear listener. How about that? Uh, so what was the world like back in 2015? We're only five years uh, in the past. Well, a few momentous things happened that year. China, for one, scrapped its one-child policy. Gay marriage was legalized across the USA in every state. And nerd alert, this one will interest you, Dave. Star Wars, The Force Awakens, took $1 billion in just 12 days at the box office. Yes, stop drooling, please, Dave. I can see the <laughs> on your webcam there. So that was what uh, it was a little. Uh, it is one of the. It is actually uh, the, uh, the the last three really were the um, uh, the best of the, the the best of the Star Wars trilogy really because at least we got uh, got rid of the uh, the god awful prequels. Yeah, and aside from that, there were what's this I have here in my notes? Uh, new uh, MotoGP reporters working for Motorcycle News and Road Racing World in 2015. Oh, I have to keep an eye on what those guys are doing nowadays <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so, in terms of MotoGP, it was uh, it was quite a fascinating year because we didn't just have the comeback of Suzuki, who had been absent uh, from the class since the end of 2011, but we also had the return of Aprilia, who were fielding a fully works MotoGP team for the first time since 2004 and the days of Shane Byrne and Jeremy McWilliams. So we had five full factories here, but the MotoGP landscape wasn't quite what it was, or what it is now, I should say, Steve. Uh, there were still some different rules and some concessions for certain factories. Can you maybe talk us through how that was a little bit different back then? Yeah, if you think back to 2012, whenever the CRT rule came in basically to try and fill out the grid it then became the open class so this was where manufacturers were able to have different concessions for different bikes honda had their full factory bike but also an open bike and uh, in 2015 that was the likes of nicky hayden eugene laverty jack miller on that bike and it was basically a way to have a more affordable bike everyone looked at it and hoped that it would be a factory light that you'd be able to be very competitive with that bike but 2014 the first year of it really showed that wasn't going to be the case but by 2015 yet 
had a big shift in terms of what the open class could be because Ducati had already changed to be an open class manufacturer. And the big advantage for them was that this was the season where Gigi Delinia's work from 2014 really was starting to pay off and uh, Ducati were able to take advantage of a lot of the advantages you had as an open class team in 2015 which they hadn't really been able to do in 2014 this was where they had pretty much unlimited testing they could change their engine uh, throughout the course of the season they could develop that they had a super soft tire in qualifying which would prove to be one of the key advantages for Ducati through the season. And then they also had the ability to use an extra two litres of fuel. This was used by some manufacturers in the open class, but Ducati never actually opted to use the 24 litres. They always used the 22. Yeah, so coming into 2015, Mark Marquez had set all kinds of new records in 2014. Um, in terms of the number of race wins, it's still his most dominant season to date. Um, Yamaha struggled at the start of 14 but really came good in the second half of that season what was the lay of the land as we went into 2015 David in terms of where each manufacturer was well yeah I mean Mark Marquez and, uh, and Honda had really dominated uh, the, uh, the certainly the first part of 2014 winning I think 10 uh, uh, 10 races in a row um, and uh, but then in the second half as they were uh, started to move the bike a little bit, Marquez was starting to make mistakes. He was crashing a lot. He crashed a lot in the second half of 2014. And although everyone was already just thinking about, you know, the, the fact that he'd totally dominate the, the first part of the season, that hid some of the weaknesses of that bike. So the, the Honda was um, uh, not in as strong a position as it, uh, as it, Sort of looked on paper, and you saw that they made uh, they, they, they changed the engine. The, the The engine was quite aggressive in 2015. Uh, the, the The first versions of them at the tests, they were. Uh, I think they turned up with something like four bikes for or four different bikes at the Sepang tests for the uh, for Pedrosa and uh, Danny Pedrosa and Mark Marcus to to try. Um, so they weren't really sure of what they were doing. Yamaha were sort of coming back again. Um, uh, they needed a little bit more power. They found some of the power which they needed to uh, to, to catch up again, which is a familiar refrain, really. I mean, what's always happened with Yamaha is they they sort of slip behind the competition and then find a few more horsepower and bring them uh, uh, and you know become again the best bike on the grid. 2015, it was the first year for uh, uh, or the GP15 was the first. A bike which Ducati had, or which Gigi Delini had really uh, had really built. He'd joined Ducati at the end of 2013. Uh, 2014, they were basically um, Delini was reorganising Ducati, changing the working procedures, changing lots of things, doing lots of research. Um, uh, throwing bits and pieces, uh, testing individual pieces around what was basically an old bike. Uh, 2015, uh, he came with a GP15, and that was that was radically different. The the old bike had chronic understeer. Uh, the GP15 was much much better. Um, uh, I think uh, the second Sepang test, which was where, uh, when Andrei Dovizioso got to ride the bike for the first time, um, he. Came out of the um, uh, came out of pit lane and went to turn into 
turn one at Sepang, which is a very tight uh, uh, right-hander, and he found himself cutting across the the inside of the kerbs because the bike he wasn't used to the bike being so easy to turn. So um, uh, it was it was it was quite a big uh, it was quite a big change. And we also it was also the first year that we started to see some of the um, uh, some aerodynamics on the uh, on the bikes as well. Um, this was Ducat again, Delinia understanding that okay, we've got this. We don't have the same level of sophistication in electronics, so we've got to use. Uh, we've got to find something else to do, to to control wheelie. Um, uh, Aprilia, it was their full. They were back as a full factory effort sort of thing, but it, they were still a long way behind. They were still sort of reeling from the loss of Gigi Delinia, really. Uh, I think, and we had Maverick Vinales and. Um, uh, Alicia Spargaro on the uh, uh, on the factory Suzuki Suzuki coming back with a with a uh, an inline four instead of the V four they'd used previously, uh, and that um, was a much much better bike than that we. I mean, I think it surprised most of us. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering as well with Aprilia that it was a project that came twelve months earlier than they had originally expected. They would always planned on twenty sixteen being the return to the class. But uh, they brought it forward 12 months. And uh, if you think back to 2014, they just basically gave a ton of new parts to Danilo Petrucci from the second half of the season onwards. I think from uh, after the summer break onwards that year, he just kept getting new parts after round after round. And he made a big jump forward. So it pretty really accelerated their program. And at the same time as they were giving Petrucci all these new parts... Marco Melandri was going on a winning spree in World Superbikes. He did a couple of doubles. He won a lot of races. The second half of the season, he was the form rider. And they said, okay, we're going to bring you to MotoGP to the, work with this project. And at the time, Melandri was adamant that this was a terrible decision. He didn't want to go back to MotoGP. He wanted to stay in Superbikes. He wanted to try and win another world championship. And he was absolutely miserable from the very first test. If you think back to Valencia 2014, Neil, you were at that test and uh, he was absolutely distraught right from the outset. Everything was bad. There was nothing positive to take from this bike. And that continued in Malaysia. It continued in Qatar and it continued right up until the moment that he lost his Aprilia ride. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, it was always it. It was almost you were drawing straws to go down to talk to Marco Melandri because it was so depressing. It was it was like he was carrying his own little dark cloud of doom around with him all the time, uh, and especially for some reason, though, bad. Dave, you you kept giving yourself the short straw because <laughs> you loved going down and talking to an absolutely miserable Marco Melandri. Well, I thought I'd go and try and cheer him up, uh, but uh, that, uh, that 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 really didn't seem to uh, that really didn't it didn't seem to work very well. Um, so yeah, it, but it was. I mean, yeah, I, one of my memories of, of that year was of Melandri being utterly miserable. It was really clear right from the start that he had absolutely no intention whatsoever of, um, uh, or not not no intention. He had absolutely no. He had no desire to be where he was, uh, uh, where he was, and he was wondering what he'd done in a past life to deserve this. So, just to go through the uh, lineup of 2015, uh, the movie star Yamaha team was made up of Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo, Mark Marquez and uh, Danny Pedrosa, that tried and trusted formula over at Repsol Honda, and Ducati had Andrea Davizioso as well as Andrea Iannone. 
Only little did we know then how well that would uh, work out in the future months and years. Uh, Suzuki, as David had mentioned, they had hired rookie hotshot Maverick Vinales, as well as Alicia Spargro, who had done so many impressive things aboard the forward Yamaha in 2014. Aprilia had Marco Landry and uh, Alvaro Bautista, a pretty shrewd signing from uh, the Grissini Honda team uh, from years gone by in the past. And uh, in terms of other bikes and signings, Danilo Petrucci and Yoni Hernandez had switched to the Pramac Ducati squad, and uh, Cal Crutchlow and Jack Miller had both moved to LCR Honda. And Tech 3 Yamaha was made up of uh, Paul Espargaro and Bradley Smith. So that was the lay of the land in terms of the rider lineup. Mentioned Jack Miller stepping up, and that was, uh, it was quite a big deal back in 2015, wasn't it, Steve? Because uh, really, we hadn't seen the likes of this kind of switch happen before, where a guy comes from Moto3, bypasses Moto2, and is plumped straight in uh, on a factory Honda contract into the Premier Class of Racing. Uh, how did uh, Miller transition? Yeah, well, you say it was unusual and you had to really go back through the record books to try and find anything similar for a rider just jumping up through the classes. Leon Haslam did it from a 125 to a 500 and uh, Gary McCoy did it from a 125 onto a 500. But from that sort of time onwards, there wasn't really anyone that made anything like this kind of change. And at the time, it really was a massive shock for everyone. And I remember being at the Valencia test and always at that test, everyone's interested in the new rider, the new guys on new bikes. You go down and you're standing outside the garage to get photos on them of them on their first exit. And the crowd outside Jack Miller's garage for that was absolutely massive. Everyone was down to see... God, I wonder, is Jack actually going to be able to ride a MotoGP bike? It, it was that kind of reaction from people. And uh, obviously, Jack went out, actually did a very solid job in the initial tests. He was riding with no electronics at the start. It was all about trying to build up a feeling with the bike and try and really get an understanding of what the MotoGP bike was. But jumping from a Moto3 bike to a MotoGP bike was a huge step. But even when you look at it in another way for for Jack, it was a massive step because 2014 was the first year where he wasn't paying for a ride in the Grand Prix paddock. That was the first year where he was actually a professional motorcycle racer. It was the first year where all the hard work of coming across from Australia to Europe was starting to pay off. And he won a lot of races at the start of the year, was a title contender, probably should have won the championship that year in Moto3. Obviously, Alex Marquez won the championship. And uh, it was Jack that got the chance to move up because Honda saw something special in him. But what was really interesting at the time was already everyone was thinking, I wonder are Honda just using this as a trial run so that they can see if Fabio Quattararo could make this step in a couple of years' time. Because if you think back to 2014, Quattararo was winning his second CEV championship. He was ready to move up to the Moto3 World Championship. And uh, from you know Qatar onwards, he was already a marked man. And there was a feeling in the paddock at the time that this could be basically a stepping stone, a proving ground to see whether or not you could move from Moto3 straight to MotoGP. So Jack Miller showed up for the first couple of tests, maybe not looking uh, in peak physical condition, still was carrying some of that uh, puppy fat from all those uh, all those uh, nights on the booze, doing some, uh, doing some partying, celebrating his factory contract in some fine style. Uh, but that was a bit of a contrast, David, to uh, a guy that would go on to be world champion, uh, Jorge Lorenzo. 
Yeah, because uh, uh, Lorenzo had turned up the year before. I mean, um, someone said to me, I remember someone uh, saying about Jack Miller when he turned up at the, because obviously the the first Sepang test, uh, everyone stays in the Sama Sama Hotel and uh, someone saw Jack Miller walking by the pool and he thought he was a pool boy because um, he was there was this fat there was this fat kid walking uh, walking through there uh, um, uh, but it turned out to be a MotoGP rider. Dave, I I saw him. I was sitting I was sitting just uh, in the reception just getting a drink and I saw Jack walking through and I turned to someone and I said, God, I've never I've never seen Jack's brother before. Because I just thought it was a fat Jack Miller. And it then turned out to be a fat Jack Miller. But that was because Jack at the time was told you have to put on weight to be a MotoGP rider. But he clearly didn't know how to put it on in the right way. So he was trying to put on just mass and he was bulking as opposed to training up to that weight. And it actually took Jack until round about the summer break before he was able to really look like a lean and fit Grand Prix rider, but that also just showed just how big of a step it was to go from Moto3 straight to MotoGP that he had to put on so much weight. And everyone knows the easiest way to do that isn't to go to the gym and hit the weights, it's just to try and put on some mass. So it took him a long time to really get to the point where he looked like a normal, regular MotoGP rider. But after a couple of rounds already, he had started to lose that that weight. It just took him took him time, but and took him time to adapt. Yeah, yeah. Also, because I think Cal Crutchlow really took him under his wing and uh, uh, helped him grow up a little bit and uh, started taking him cycling. And uh, uh, by the end of the year, it was very different. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was actually one of the interesting things about it. When you look back at, what your notes from the season it was Cal that was probably the most positive person about what Jack could do and he talked the whole time from even the LCR launch he told me that uh, it's an opportunity for Jack to have three years to really learn his craft and he can move up on the open class bike in 2015 and just try and understand things he doesn't have to be at the front he doesn't have to win races he's got three years and it's all about being able to build up so that by the end of those three years and 2016 and 17 that he's able to be at the front he's able to win races and obviously Jack did manage to win a race in that uh, three-year period and it really showed that he was capable of making the jump up to MotoGP yeah exactly well I mean uh, Jorge Lorenzo was the opposite because he'd done the thing the year before in uh, 2013 when Lorenzo uh, crashed uh, broke his collarbone twice at uh, Assen the most famous example and then also the example uh, uh, he did it again two weeks later at um, uh, the Saxon Ring um, had to have Surgery for a, for you know a, a second time to to play a, a, a plate of collarbone. Um, he had his he had the plates taken out in the winter of 2013, and he turned up early 2014 looking uh, uh, pretty chunky. Uh, they were having to re uh, readjust his leathers sort of two or three times a day just because he was losing so much he was losing bulk and his leathers didn't fit uh, uh, all the time uh, in the way Yamaha wanted to avoid a repeat of that uh, and they sent um, uh, for, for 2015 so they made sure he was training and they even sent Wilco Zielenberg who's his uh, team manager at the time um, uh, down to stay with him in, in Andorra to go skiing with him 
uh, they were doing some cross-country seeing to, to make sure that he was sort of knuckling down. And uh, Lorenzo was in, when he turned up at Sepang, Lorenzo was in really, really good shape. And it was really clear that, uh, you know, he learned these lessons and this was, this was going to be very different. And obviously this was a season to be remembered as a fantastic battle between Lorenzo and his teammate Valentino Rossi. Did we have an inkling during pre-season testing, Steve, from the test that you had gone to, that it was going to pan out in this way? Well, obviously, David went to Sepang 2, but uh, I was at Sepang 1 as well, and it was a test where there's a very different air to it than what you get at Sepang 2, because a lot of the manufacturers didn't have their full-spec bikes for 2015 at the test. They kind of rolled through with a hybrid, and uh, this was a... This was a test where you really just look and see who's looking like they've spent the winter really working hard. And and obviously, as David said, Lorenzo looked like he was ready. He looked really fit. But what was interesting for me was actually his teammate was Valentino Rossi. Because if you think back to when Rossi moved to Yamaha, the big thing was that, oh, this is great. Rossi's away from Ducati. He's back on a Yamaha. He's going to be right at the front again. And then he really wasn't in 2013. Qatar, he had a great battle with Marquez for the podium. It took him a long time that season to really get up to speed. And even the win at Assen, it always felt a little bit inherited. Then you go into 2014 and uh, Rossi was, you know, he was quick again and he was able to win races on merit. And I remember whenever he won at Misano, we all looked at one another and we said, you know what? we might have been at Valentino Rossi's last ever MotoGP win and everyone in the press room thought the same. We all thought we'd seen something special. And then a couple of months later, he won at uh, Phillip Island and then you're thinking, you know what, actually, maybe Rossi's got a chance again. Maybe he's going to be able to win one or two races a year for another couple of years. And that really seemed to motivate him for the winter because he turned up at the Sepang test and... He walked into the paddock like a man that owned the paddock. And I first went to MotoGP races as a journal in 2012. And that was in the middle of his MotoGP, in the middle of his Ducati years. Obviously, David, you were there before that. But uh, that was during the Ducati years where his head was down. He was really struggling. And then when he went back to Yamaha, it was just great that he was able to be on a good bike again. And he just seemed happy and at ease with things. But I never saw him look like the king of the paddock. And he walked through the gates on day one at Sepang and that test and he just looked like a man that was ready for anything. And I remember I was talking to Matt Bird at the time and I said to Matt, God, Rossi looks ready for it. And uh, Birdie said to me, I've not seen him look like that since, you know, the end of you know, 2008, nine, those kind of years, whenever he just came in and you knew that he was going to win races, you knew he was going to win championships. And he looked like that again after Sepang won. Okay, so that was the preseason of 2015, and now we're going to go straight into round one of the year. And as has, as has been custom in recent years, Qatar was the scene under the floodlights for race number one. What a race we had there in 2015. I was going through some of my notes uh, prior to recording this podcast, and uh, I don't really know where to start, to be honest, but I guess probably the best place is the fight for victory, because we had four riders, one was completely notable by his absence. That was the world champion, Mark Marquez. He wasn't anywhere to be seen. But it ended up being a bit 
off a factory Yamaha versus factory Ducati slog div. And uh, what a final lap it was from Valentino Rossi. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it really was a sign that, you know, Valentino Rossi was here and and serious, but it was also a real sign that okay, yeah, the uh, the Ducati has always been strong at um, uh, it's always been strong at Qatar, but this was a real sign that uh, the the Ducati was in really really good shape, um, and you know it was a it was a battle all the way to the line, and it was I remember thinking uh, discussing with someone afterwards like you 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 would never you would always bet on Valentino Rossi in those situations in you know in sort of hand-to-hand combat at the very end but I think also the other thing was this was the sign that there was something a little bit wrong with the Honda because this was Mark Marquez going into turn one and running wide straight from the start uh, missing the braking marker, and uh, then we were all wondering: so, what's going on? Why? Why is this? What's happening? Uh, that, that to me, was a sign that there was something a bit peculiar about this race, or, or, or certainly about the Honda that year. Yeah, and it was interesting because obviously in the Qatar test. That was always going to be an important test for Honda because obviously in Sepang you've got six days to get everything configured. You really get an understanding of how your bike works at the Sepang circuit and it became really important then to make sure that you can validate everything at the Qatar test because if you've got to lock in your um, engine configuration and homologation from the first round onwards, you really need to have a good grasp on the bike. David mentioned it earlier on that Honda had 10 different bikes and uh, lots of different riders at the Sepang test, but it was the Qatar test that really was going to be important. That was where they were going to really focus on trying to nail down their engine configurations. But the one problem with the Qatar test is no one uses the track for the first four hours because it's not relevant to the race weekend. It's really dirty. It's really dusty. It's tough to use. And uh, then the final day of the test was also ruined because it was a washout. So Honda effectively had probably a day's running in Qatar to really nail down everything about their engine. But they spent the first, uh, or they spent the Qatar test with Marquez working on aero. He was using a new fairing to try and make sure they had better top speed. Pedroza was working on the engine configuration. And they thought that they had had it all figured because at the Qatar test, Danny was talking about it being one of the best winters he'd ever had that the bike was really well suited the bike was ready for the season but Dave as you said right from that first from the first corner you could see that Mark wasn't happy with the bike and that was something that continued all the way through the season so the warning signs were there but we didn't really grasp on them right from the first round we thought oh well he's made a mistake and uh, for Marquez he still came through the field he was still able to finish inside the top five he recovered really well so it wasn't the end of the world but it was a bit of a warning sign yeah uh, yeah absolutely it was it was a real sign that uh that there was something up but but also um it was sort of a bad weekend for honda because uh on sunday night after the uh, after the race uh danny pedrosa said he had an announcement to make and the announcement was that uh, he was going to go and have arm pump surgery because he's had a horrific arm pump during the race uh, and he was going to miss a few races. And again, this is we talked about this before, the, the drama, this is all of the drama which we forgot 
uh, we, which we've completely forgotten about, um, uh, which all got overshadowed by what happened at the end of the year. Yeah, and, and I remember, like, and obviously we'll get back to talking about the battle at the front for the win, but as you said, Dave, one of the big stories was that Pedroza announcement. I remember when the email came in, it didn't say that Danny Pedroza was going to have a media scrum. It said that Danny Pedroza was going to read a prepared statement. And all of us, we were all sitting there thinking, this is it. Danny Pedroza is going to announce that he's going to retire because we saw what had happened over the course of the weekend with him. And obviously Danny had already had two or three arm pump surgeries at that stage. And this was going to be a last last chance. This was the one to really get it sorted. And I remember at the time Super was telling us that this was an incredibly invasive surgery that only one or two people had ever really had. So it really was a last stab in the dark to try and find a solution to it. Yeah, and also uh, Pedrosa was uh, quite... Uh, wary of surgery because of what had happened to him previously um, uh, with the collarbone surgery. There was the collarbone surgery where he had, uh, he ended up with, um, uh, I forget the name of the syndrome, but anyway, he, he ended up with, with no no feeling. But, uh, basically, there was a screw pressing on a nerve and that was stopping him, uh, stopping him from having any feeling uh, uh, in the left hand side, in his right arm. Uh, and that meant he couldn't. Um, uh, he couldn't. He, he he was genuinely afraid that he would be. Uh, he would. Uh, he would be able to ride again. Um, and it was just uh, so for him to come out again with another. You know, facing another surgery, and also coming out and saying. Um, you know, he had like you said, having uh, oh, Danny's got a statement to make. You really thought, okay, that's it. He's he's done. Yeah, and, and the saddest part of it was that this was the most relaxed that many people had seen Pedroza. He had split with Alberto Pooch, so he had split with the man that had really found him and brought him through the Grand Prix ranks, and he was he was becoming his own man. And he spent the whole winter laughing and joking and just looking really relaxed. And, you know, suddenly it all looked like it just got swept out from underneath him, and that's what, for me, was the big shame at the time. Yeah, so tough times for Danny Pedrosa and he would face three races on the sidelines, pretty much ending his championship chances there and then right from the off in 2015. Now, obviously, it was uh, it was a bit of an Italian whitewash at the front of the field because Jorge Lorenzo had some problems in the first race, meaning that he couldn't finish on the podium. And in his place, we had a very uh, exuberant uh, young Italian scaling the MotoGP podium for the first time ever in his life. And it was the first all-Italian podium since 2006 here in Qatar, 2015. Andrea Inoni, pretty much announced himself as, uh, well, a podium contender and a potential race winner with this performance in Qatar. And Ian O'Neill, this was the start of a really special time. Yeah, and Ian O'Neill had said that his goal for the season was to finish in the top five everywhere. That's that's what he was setting as his goal. Ducati had said at the pre-season that they were going to set ambitious goals for themselves. And that was, we want to win a Grand Prix this year. And Ian Ona, as I said, wants to be inside the top five every weekend. So Qatar really proved that Ian Ona was going to be able to be do things like that and be a very consistent rider all the way through the season. And that's exactly what he became. But uh, for Ducati to suddenly be able to almost win a Grand Prix right from the first round was a surprise. In the Qatar tests, Ducati were really strong. They looked like they had a very fast bike in the straight, obviously, but now they had a bike that could use the tyre well. They could really 
have consistent pace and that was what surprised a lot of people and obviously David for for Dovi in this race to be so close to taking that win really did just show just how good he could be that season in those early rounds yeah exactly and it was um, uh, it, it was a uh, a little bit of revenge almost for uh, Dovicioso in that um, uh, you know he'd been kicked out of Honda and it, um, uh, he'd had some podiums on the on the Yamaha and then he signed for Ducati and he'd been through was it two long and quite difficult years um, uh, developing the bike you know trying trying to get the bike uh, forward trying to move the bike forward. Uh, and it just it you know it, it just really wasn't taking it was just really taking a lot of time to to actually get there. So for him to come on and be that um, that competitive was really important for him. Taking the pole as well, David, uh, with that advantage of the super soft uh, open class tire as well, it showed that obviously they were going to have strong one lap pace, but. That was only one lap. They were going to be there for the duration of the race as well. And for me, one of the interesting things was to see the shift in Davi. He went from the start of the weekend talking about, I want to be able to try and get a podium. I want to be able to stay within, you know, however many seconds of the race victory. I don't, you know, I don't remember him talking about being able to fight for the win. And it was interesting to listen to him afterwards because he was talking then, you know, if you had offered me second place at the start, I would have taken it. But 45 minutes on a bike is a long time. And during those 45 minutes, I suddenly changed what I wanted from this race and I changed what was an acceptable goal. He wanted to win this race and he wanted to beat Rossi. Yeah, it was a tremendous performance from Andrea Dovizioso, who in recent years has proven himself to be a real specialist in Qatar. Uh, but it was an even better performance from Valentino Rossi because uh, this was kind of setting the scene for 2015 in many respects because Rossi, one of his big issues that year, was qualifying. He couldn't quite get the utmost or the absolute best out of his M1 during the new 15-minute uh, qualifying uh, format that was introduced in 2013. He still hadn't quite uh, come to terms with that. And uh, here he was starting eighth on the third row of the grid, but it was uh, an inspired ride through the field. And, uh, well, he saved the very best until the last. Yeah, I mean, th that, that last lap battle was really, uh, like I say, it, it really was quite special and uh, in the end it came down to uh, I suppose veteran wiles you know it really was um, the, 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 this is something that the Valentino Rossi has done so many times before and uh, it showed that he really was um, that this really could be the year for him Dave, Dave you said he's done it so many times was this another one of those examples where he was playing poker through the race if you remember back to Phillip Island 2002 against Barros he kept breaking really early into the Honda hairpin and then he lulled Barros into attacking him on the last lap when suddenly Rossi was breaking at his limit and Barros thought alright I've been breaking later than him every time into this corner I'll go a bit deeper and Rossi obviously swept through and took the win but in Qatar he kept getting overtaken by Davi on the start-finish straight. And then on that last lap, he just kept his cards close to his chest and then suddenly was able to stay out in front when it mattered. Well, yeah, but that's, I mean, that really is experience. That's thats the experience of being, having been in that position for so many times for so many, uh, so many years. But like I said, I, think, I mean, I think for me it was uh, a sign that, okay, 
you know, this is this is serious. This isn't just, um, uh, as you said, you know, like the the the, the, the one off win uh, at Aston in two thousand and thirteen, or. Um, this was a real sign that um, you know he, he could be in contention. It was a, a brilliant piece of racecraft, uh, and um, he found a way to make sure that, uh, or to, to, if you like, to to, to neutralise the, uh, the the speed of the Ducati. Yeah, and I, I remember afterwards he said that this was one of the best races he ever had. He was comparing it to the Mugello 500 Grand Prix against Caparossi in 2000. He was comparing it to uh, Laguna Seca in 2008, Montmelo in 2009. He came away from this thinking that this was a proper last lap battle and it was just sheer intensity to try and get the win. So we went from Qatar that hosted round one to Texas for the second round of the season. And uh, well, obviously, Texas being Texas, Mark Marquez was uh, the strongest rider there. But for me, I think the highlight of this round has to be on qualifying day rather than race day because Marquez's pole lap on the Saturday that year was probably the best qualifying lap I've ever seen. It was just uh, quite staggering the time that his uh, bike came to a standstill as he was going down the start-finish trade. He then had to leg it down pit lane all the way to his second machine and he just had enough time to do an out lap and then start uh, his final flying lap of the session. And that final flying lap was uh, far from perfect, but totally spectacular, just on the ragged, ragged edge, almost as if Mark was uh, trying to prove a bit of a point after losing out in race one and not being up there amongst uh, the leading four names. However, in terms of the weekend as a whole, there were some interesting developments regarding the replacement ride in the Repsol Honda garage alongside Marquez because uh, obviously Danny Pedrosa was out and uh, a certain ex-world champion was uh, jockeying to uh, come back and uh, fill his boots for a few weekends. What was the, the story there, Dave? Because we, we do know that uh, a certain Australian had his eyes on that ride. Well, that's that's right. I mean, after Casey Stoner retired, um, I was pretty much convinced that, you know, that was it. He's never going to be racing again. And um, so uh, after Honda announced that uh, Hiroshi Aoyama would be in for um, Austin, um, there was... Uh, a certain amount there were a sort of rumors and there was a certain amount of pressure coming from uh, Stoner uh, to take the place of uh, of Danny Pedrosa and um, uh, Stoner himself said was you know look Danny's a friend and I just uh, and I want to replace him uh, for his sake sort of thing to actually you know represent something on the bike because it was fairly obvious that Aoyama wasn't going to be quick enough um, to be truly competitive um, but Honda ended up turning him down and choosing Aoyama over him and that sort of set in a uh, that set in motion a chain of events where Stoner wasn't getting the amount of testing time that he wanted there were rumours that Marquez was uh, uh, didn't really want Stoner testing the bike. He wasn't happy with Stoner's feedback. Uh, there was also a sense that um, Stoner was, th there was, uh, you know, some jealousy or difficulty there between the two of them. Um, so, yeah, it was just, uh, it was, a, a, and again, that would lead on to events at the end of the year. Uh, which um, which also came as a surprise, but yeah, it was it was strange to see Casey Stoner all of a sudden being in, in, in the centre of attention. 
Yeah, it was funny as well because at the time, HRC organised a, a media scrum with Nakamoto-san, which was quite unusual. They didn't tend to do that an awful lot, except for maybe at the end of the season and uh, you know maybe one other time during the year. But they did one to try and explain the decision not to have uh, Casey on the bike. And uh, what was really interesting from it was that Nakamoto said that he was thrilled. He had spent... You know, a couple of years saying, "Come on, Casey, we'll get you a wild card at Phillip Island. We'll, you know, get you on the bike, and uh, it'd be great to see you back here." And Casey always turned it down. And then this was the chance where Casey actually went to Honda and said, "I want to ride the bike. I, I want to come in and, and replace uh, Danny for these couple of rounds." And Honda decided that Casey was a very important person and that they couldn't run the risk of you know sullying his good name by having him on the bike and not finish on the podium and really what it was telling us was Casey is a very important person to Honda but Mark Marquez is a much more very important person and we don't want to run the risk of annoying Marquez and as you said David at that stage there was maybe a bit of jealousy between the the two in terms of both of them believing they're the best MotoGP rider in the world and they should be, their feedback is the most important thing and they both want to lead the charge. And this was the moment, as you said, that really fractured that relationship. And it was just because, and Honda have been proven to be perfectly right with their decision in, in, in hindsight, when you look back on the last five years, that having Mark Marquez on your bike for those five years is much more important than having Casey Stoner on your bike for maybe five races to replace Danny Pedrosa. Yeah, bummer, I'm not racing. No prep was needed as I wasn't planning on winning. Just replacing a good friend and having some fun in Texas is what Casey Stoner tweeted out at the time, making his uh, feelings pretty clear and uh, making it obviously, uh, sorry, making it very obvious uh, just who made the final decision on that uh, on that uh, move there. So, uh Marquez obviously won out in Texas. Davizioso was second again, quite impressive there. And uh, Rossi, at the scene of uh, Yamaha's Nadir, I think, in 2014, was uh, a pretty strong and able third place. While Jorge Lorenzo, his championship hadn't quite got into gear. So he was in fourth. He was suffering from bronchitis that weekend. His 2015 season just wasn't quite uh, getting together. Yeah, MotoGP race wasn't uh, anything too crazy to ride home about, but it was a pretty momentous day for the UK in Grand Prix racing because it had two different winners in the junior categories. Sam Lowe's triumphing, earning his first win in Moto2, while Danny Kent stormed off and uh, dominated Moto3 proceedings, Steve. Yeah, and I remember like for me, obviously working for MCN, a British publication, this was probably the biggest single day that we had up until Danny Kent won the championship because this was where two British riders had won a Grand Prix and both had won them in style. If you think back to uh, the Moto2 race, Sam had a massive crash in qualifying. He was battered and bruised and still managed to win the race. And uh, it's always one that whenever he looks back on, he thinks the race was great, but his wheelie across the line was shit. And uh, he, he he still gets annoyed about that. Uh, for Danny Kent, this was a race where he was superb. He had had a good weekend in Qatar and he had shown that, you know what, maybe th- Danny's going to be strong through the course of this year. But in uh, Coda, he was absolutely fantastic and he won the race. And afterwards in the press conference, he he turned to everyone and he said, God, I tell you what, I hope Honda's still looking in uh, Moto3 for potential MotoGP riders 
because this was one of those days where everything came together for him. And obviously for Danny, he went on to win the World Championship, but he was actually linked with MotoGP rides and he was in talks with Pramac and also with Aspar by the end of that summer just to move straight up into the MotoGP class and uh, not return to the Moto2 class. But uh, obviously for Danny, he did end up returning to the Moto2 class and he's never had the chance to get onto a MotoGP bike. Uh, I think we should do a separate episode of the Paddock Pass podcast, a sliding doors edition. What would have happened had Danny Kent accepted that MotoGP ride in 2015? What would uh, his career trajectory have been like since then? But that is a discussion for another day, I'm sure, because we're going to smooth... We're going to move swiftly on to Argentina, the third round of the season, and the year's first big flashpoint. Now, uh, I remember watching this from home. Steve, you were there. I think, Dave, you were also watching from home. It was clear from the first day just what desperate condition the uh, track surface was in. Obviously, Argentina, the uh, Termas de Rio Ondo circuit doesn't really get used so often. And, uh, well, yeah, not only was uh, was the track dirty, but it was uh, very, very abrasive and uh, tire Duration was a real issue for a lot of riders through qualifying. This turned into a bit of a, a race defined by different tyre strategies because you had uh, Mark Marquez going for the softer option, bolting from the start, Valentino Rossi going with the extra hard rear tyre and deciding to, uh, to try and bring that up to speed before chasing Marquez down. Uh, for me, I think this might have been Rossi's best ride of the season. It was vintage Valentino, especially in those laps when he was just skizing through the the pack, cutting down Marquez's lead. And, uh, well, what a, what a conclusion. The first big uh, checkpoint, or the, the first big flashpoint, I should say, between the two in 2015, Steve. Yeah, and it was really interesting because, as you said, Neil, Rossi just recovered through the field. Again, he struggled in qualifying. He's down on the third row with the grid, I think, and having to come through the field. And I remember talking to Bradley Smith in these early rounds, and I was asking Brad, you know, like you get to look at Rossi's data and you're able to pick up what he does and what he does well. And I was asking him, what's the big thing that stands out to you? And he, he was saying that, you know, when you look at Rossi's data in practice or qualifying or anything like that, it's good. And you can learn an awful lot from it. But it's actually whenever you look at him in a race, that's where he's impressive because he doesn't lose time overtaking people. He doesn't get stuck behind anyone and uh, try and dive bomb them and cost himself a couple of tenths of a second to get in front of people. Instead, he's always able to pick his moments to make the move with the least amount of fuss. And this was the race where it really showed that. He was using the hard tyre and he was the only rider that was able to use the hard tyre in Argentina that year and really make it work for him. But by halfway through the race, he was five, six seconds behind Marquez. And then he suddenly started just picking up chunks of time on him and really being able to close down that gap, bridge him and uh, put him under a lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, I remember drawing up a uh, uh, a chart of the of lap times between the two, and seeing um, you can really see the difference. That at the start, Marquez was really a lot quicker, uh, and then at a certain point, sort of the the lines cross, and all of a sudden, Valentino Rossi is is reeling uh, Marquez in really quickly, and um, uh, I think he got past. Uh, there was a, there were a, a couple of moments when Rossi got past, and then Marquez made a couple of very aggressive moves to try and come back, uh, but. Finally, Rossi came through and um, uh, when he, uh, he came through after a right-hander going through to the left-hander, I think it's third, uh, four and five or three and four, I can't remember. 
but he basically came through the uh, pass going into the uh, uh, at the end of the back straight into the right hander, uh, and then had to flick it left for the uh, uh, for, for for the next corner, and he cut across basically the line where. Mark Marquez wanted to go where Mark Marquez's front wheel was and down Mark Marquez went and that set quite a lot of bad blood, I think. Yeah, this was the first real sign where we saw their relationship have that turn because if you think back to 2013, obviously there was a couple of flashes between them. Laguna, for instance, and Qatar, they had big battles, but there was always the laughing and joking because at that stage... Rossi was just, as I said earlier, he was just glad to be back on a good bike. He wasn't thinking in terms of, you know what, I've got to win every race. I've got to make myself a title contender. Whereas by the time we got to 15, he had gone from it being where it was amazing for Rossi to win a race to now it was expected that he was going to win races. And that's where we really saw that uh, shift in the relationship between them. And Argentina was obviously the first flashback of that. Yeah, I remember um, uh, after writing about the race on Sunday night, I think uh, that week I was getting messages from both Honda and from Yamaha uh, telling me, uh, explaining to me in great detail exactly why I was either right or wrong, depending on who I was getting the message from. Yeah, and I, I remember, Dave, after Argentina, I, I got uh, a couple of messages for some reason about the headlines that we're using. Like I said earlier on, I tried once to get my headline in MCN so I can legitimately say that I was not creative enough to come up with this headline. <laughs> but uh, the back page of MCN that, that weekend was Argy Bargy. And uh, it was uh, not met with uh, universal praise from uh, some quarters of HRC. <laughs> Valentino is Valentino. He's always been my hero and you always learn something about him was uh, Marquez's response to being knocked off on the final lap there. Make of that what you may. Yeah, and it was also, it was interesting afterwards because when you talk to Mark about it, you were asking him like, this was obviously a time where you lost so much time to Rossi you were five seconds in front what were you thinking at the time of the crash and like obviously in, in Argentina as you said Neil there's not an awful lot of journalists go there at, at the minute you're one of the few that goes to Argentina and it's because it's a very inaccessible race so when you're talking to riders you actually get the chance to have a much more in-depth debrief with them than you normally do at a European round there's 20 journalists all asking questions at these kind of races there could be two or three so you get the chance to really prod them and ask them the questions and I, and I was asking uh, Mark about it and he, he just said like you know what every race I'm trying to win every race it's my objective and I'm going to do everything I can to win and whenever I asked him whether or not it was one of those times where maybe you're better off settling for 20 points he he just gave me that look that only Marquez can give you whenever you <laughs> suggest that winning isn't the only objective you should ever have. And he was there, you know what? I wanted the 25 points. I wanted the win and I wanted to make sure I was pushing at my absolute maximum. But maybe in the future, I'll have to learn that sometimes 20 points is better than no points. And it wasn't where he should learn that 20 points is 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 an acceptable result. It was just that it was better than nothing. And he viewed it as pretty much being the same as nothing. He was winner boss that day. Yeah. Also, this was, this incident, um, I think, obviously, we all remember that uh, 
the history of 2015 ends up in sort of Sepang and being written there. Um, but talk to people who on both sides who know about this, and certainly on uh, on Mark Marquez's side, this for him was uh, the moment that everything broke because uh, they say, oh, you know, Mark Marquez believed that this was the that, that uh, Rossi did this on purpose. He um, um, he actively you know took him out uh, and. Uh, that he felt that 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 was the moment, and that was the that was the sort of anger which got played out uh, later in the year. How true that is, I don't know. It's uh, you know we can't look into the minds of riders, and um, uh, we'll certainly in in part two of this we'll get to talk a lot about looking into the minds of riders. I think. Yeah, and I think as as well, this was one of those moments that, and again, like you said, David, we'll look into this a lot more in part two. But I remember at the next race in the pre-event press conference, Rossi was asked about how things are changing between him and Marquez. And this was the first time where he really did talk about that shift. And he talked about how the fact that, you know, with Biaggi, they always hated each other. They never got along. So nothing really changed. With Gibber now, they were good friends. Then they had their instance together, whether it was the protest in Qatar, the last lap crashes, just basically having to race and fight with one another made a difference in that. Marco Melandri was a great friend of Rossi's whenever he was coming through. And if you think back to Melandri's rookie year in 2003, he broke his leg at Suzuka and it was Rossi that was going to the hospital to visit him to make sure he was all right. And then suddenly with Marquez, at this stage, this was where Rossi started talking about the fact that when you race against different people, it's very difficult to say that you're friends because you have to beat them. You, you have to respect them, but you have to beat them. And uh, obviously later in the season, we heard him change that tone a little bit in terms of you just have to beat them. It was also the moment I remember Rossi speaking in uh, Park Fermi after the race when he said to the camera, we can definitely win this. Um, and that was, the, to me anyway, the first, or it was just, a, it was kind of like a switch that had been, been flicked in Rossi's head where he suddenly really realised that, yeah, this is on, we can win the championship this year. This is definitely uh, something we can do. Yeah, and like I said, Neil, that was actually the approach that you could see right from Sepang, but it's always interesting when a rider suddenly airs those thoughts. And like you said, that's a moment where everyone thinks, all right, we're on we're on to something now and this is where we can have a big turn. And obviously for Rossi, you know, he was leading the championship. This was the first time since I think 2009 that he had actually led the world championship at, at the start of the season. So suddenly he really was reignited. He was that fire was back and he wasn't he wasn't an old man racing. He wasn't looking at it like this is his his last chance. He was looking at it like, you know what? I'm back where I belong. I'm back where I should always be. So we're going to Jerez for the start of the European season. And Rossi is just six points ahead of Andrea De Vizioso. But deep down, I think we're all looking at Marquez, maybe even Lorenzo in the championship and uh, thinking about where they are. Marquez, you can say, okay, he was, well, not taken out, but there was a clash in Argentina that affected him. There was that first lap mistake in Qatar. Had it not been for those two incidents, he could have been fighting for race wins in all three races, but Lorenzo was something of an enigma in his opening three rounds. Uh, didn't quite get on with uh, tyre selection in uh, Termas de Rio Hondo in Argentina. But when we got to Jerez, this was uh, the start of a spell of domination from the Mallorcan that, uh, well, really uh, 
made us realize that this was not just going to be Rossi and Marquez. There was also going to be uh, Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, it was the first uh, MotoGP run that I attended, so I kind of remember all sorts of different details. One of those was I think it took Lorenzo about four laps to break the outright circuit lap record in FP1. And that became something of a theme that we saw going on throughout that year. This really was Lorenzo's championship challenge kickstarting, getting kickstarted. Yeah, and I remember after Argentina, I was asked to to write about the Rossi Marquez title fight because it was guaranteed this was going to be the rivalry for the ages. This was going to be the title fight because don't don't worry about Mark. You know you can't write him off whenever he's given up those points. It's, he's going to come back. He's going to win a lot of races. And I remember I, I wrote in it that um, you know what? Don't rule out lorenzo either because the thing with it is lorenzo was really fast in qatar and then the helmet lining fell down he couldn't see through the helmet at the end of the race so he sort of faded down as you said earlier on neil he had bronchitis in coda struggled with the tire in uh, argentina but the reason he struggled with the tire was rossi was the only rider that could really make that super hard Bridgestone rear tyre work in Argentina. So by the time we got to Jerez, Lorenzo was in great form. And even like you mentioned there in FP1, what he was able to do, he was putting in laps with a 30 lap old tyre that were as fast as people on a fresh tyre. So it showed just how consistent he was going to be. And you knew that he was going to be strong all the way through that weekend. And you knew that Jerez, Le Mans, Mugello, Catalonia were circuits that were going to play to his strengths as well. So you knew he was going to come back in, in, into form. And like we said earlier on, this season was so unique because you knew that everyone was going to fall at some point. Everyone was going to struggle at uh, a couple of circuits, but it was going to be who was going to be able to really maximise their bike when it was working well. Up to this point, Ducati were doing a great job with Davi. Obviously, Davi starts to fall off his perch a little bit from this point onwards, but Lorenzo really came into form now. And this was uh, leading into the first corner, leading the first lap, and then going on to lead every other lap of the race. This uh, performance in Jerez, David, set something of a precedent in terms of how Lorenzo was going to approach his racing from now on. Uh, yeah, it was it was classic Lorenzo. It's exactly what we've uh, what we've come to expect from uh, Lorenzo, just being incredibly quick out of the box and setting setting the kind of pace that no one no one else can follow. And he just looked absolutely fantastic throughout uh, throughout the entire weekend, uh, and there didn't seem to be anyone who could really follow it, uh, who could really follow him. I think Jerez for me was the moment that Dovizioso really started for or falling off uh, because uh, Jerez has historically been a really bad track for uh, Ducati. It was the place where they always seem to struggle uh, since the switch to the uh, uh, 800s, basically, since uh, since about 2007. Um, and then they came to they, they came to Jerez, um, and uh, we saw uh, Dovi just really wasn't really anywhere he finished a long way behind the um uh behind uh, the 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 leaders and he didn't look like he could it didn't look like he could t- contend but we did see you know um uh rossi doing well we saw lorenzo doing really really well um uh, oh you know Lorenzo just weird j- j- just dominating so it was it was clear that um uh, ducati had made a step but not enough of a step 
Yeah, and I think for Dovey in this race, he had, a, he had a problem at the start and it dropped him all the way down the order. But like you said, Dave, this is where a lot of things started to go wrong for Ducati because even after Hareth, they had a two-day test at Mugello and Iannone dislocated his shoulder in a crash. Dovey had obviously this problem in the Hareth race. So it was starting to turn for him as well. But Neil, like you said earlier on, like this was a race that should be rem- remembered for what Lorenzo did because like he was amazing you know this was like you said a race where he led from the first corner and then won the race and i think pretty much every race he won that year was first corner to checkered flag and, and never headed so moving swiftly along we went to uh, le mans next and uh, going to basically combine le mans and Mugello because they were both uh, interesting races uh, both saw same rider winning lorenzo obviously uh, getting his custom trademark uh, fast start leading from the first lap and then clearing off into the distance maybe not so much in Le Mans because uh, Rossi eventually tried to track him down but uh, Lorenzo stood firm but it was at these two tracks where we really came to understand just the predicament that the Honda riders were in because Marquez had been performing pretty well up until now but at Le Mans uh, all the Hondas had a desperate day Crutchlow, Pedro's uh, Redding crashed uh, Marquez just about stayed on after uh, a couple of massive moments that he had when he was battling with Iannone couldn't even get anywhere near the podium and uh, yet the same could be said in Mugello and Mugello was probably the stage where Marquez crashed out of second while fighting with Iannone, Davizioso and Rossi that was probably the moment where we thought actually you know what I think he's even at this early stage he's out of the title fight David were you uh, were you in agreement with uh, what I just said yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially the crash at, um, uh, because he crashed at, um, at Mugello, uh, uh, again, battling for the, uh, battling for the title. He wasn't going to settle for points. He was going to try and win this race. Uh, and then a race later, he crashes in Barcelona also, once again battling for the, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to win the race rather than settle for second. And it was really starting to look like they were uh, they were in real trouble. The, the, the front end really wasn't, uh, it wasn't holding up the way, or the, the bike wasn't really holding up the way that it, that it needed to. Yeah, uh, what was interesting with the Honda, obviously for Mark he, and for Danny as well, came back at Le Mans and had a crash during the race and, and remounted. But uh, for... Mark, what he was saying was the biggest issue was it just kept sliding. The front just kept sliding underneath, like David said, with those front-end issues. And what was interesting was when you look back at what Crutchlow or Redding, riders that were new to the Honda, were saying when they first jumped onto the bike was that you have to brake so hard with the Honda. But it's amazing because you can brake on that angle with the Honda. You can carry the lean into the corner and still be on the brake. It was unnatural for those riders to do that. For Mark, though, now he couldn't get away with it. And the reason he couldn't get away with it was Yamaha were a lot stronger on the brakes this year compared to what they had been in the past. They had the fully seamless downshift, so suddenly they had a bit more performance on the brakes into the corners. And it meant that Mark was having to suddenly be even more aggressive than what he had been before. And it was exaggerating all the problems that Honda had in the past. So this was really where we were starting to see all the issues with the Honda come to light. The front was struggling on the brakes. At Le Mans, on the exit of the last corner up towards the first corner, you could see that it was getting gapped on the straight as well because the engine wasn't working great. The electronics weren't working great. And it was really all those things starting to come together to show you that up until this point, Mark was still really fast but now suddenly all those little 
problems that he had gotten away with in 2014 were now coming back to bite him because he wasn't out in front of the field and now they were really starting to affect him during the race. Yeah, and we saw that problem repeated when we went to Catalonia because it was in the third lap of the race there where he was fighting, contesting the lead with Lorenzo. He was absolutely sure what Lorenzo's tactic was going to be. And now it was just bolt from the start. Tried to stay up with him and just basically, uh, well, surpassed uh, what his bike was capable of that time. And uh, Marquez crashed going into uh, turn 10, hairpin at the end of the back straight. And I remember asking Mark after this race, right, you've had three crashes in what, six races now? Three non-scores? Like, is it time to maybe rein it in a bit? Like, to try a different tactic and not just go gung-ho all the time. And, you know, obviously Mark was uh, still showing his age at this point, but he was just like, no, 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 no I'm going to continue with this approach. You know, it's all in just winner, winner, nothing, basically. And, well, I mean, it was these, uh, you could look back on the, the championship at the end of the year. It was these three races, the crashes in, in Argentina, also the crashes in Mugello and, and Barcelona, which uh, probably cost them a shot at winning the championship that year. Yeah, and it was then obviously interesting that they changed chassis after Catalonia to go back to the 2014 bike, and it just gave them that little bit more confidence. But when you look at Catalonia, it was another one of those instances where we saw, and this was something that obviously when Mark first came into MotoGP in 2013, everyone was waiting for this crash from Marquez, where he just run into the back of someone and he was going to clear out the field. Now, obviously enough, he managed to recover it well enough where he made contact with Lorenzo, but he had gotten himself mostly out of the way. But uh, what was interesting afterwards was when you talk to the other riders about an incident like this, you know, Mark had a reputation for being dangerous. But again, Bradley Smith was one of the interesting riders to quote about it because he said, you know what, I remember the first year when Mark came up to MotoGP, there was a big moment on lap one in Hareth where everyone thought he's just going to skittle everyone, but he didn't. And it's only dangerous if you hit people. Mark's always able to figure a way to somehow manoeuvre his bike around those issues. And obviously in Catalonia, he still figured a way to do it. But fair play to to Mark afterwards, because he, he talked about it and he was very open. He was talking in terms of when you're out in front and when you've got clean air, you can ride however you want. Because if you have a slide, you can manage to just change your entry into the corner and you can square it off. You can do different things and you can still recover it. But once you're in a battle like this, if you make a mistake, there's no chance of recovering. If you're a little bit late or the slide bites a little bit wrong, you don't get that opportunity to really recover from it. Catalonia, he couldn't recover from it and he has that crash. And like you said, Neil, suddenly he's pretty much out of title contention. Catalonia was notable for, well, Jorge Lorenzo's fourth straight victory. I think it was the first rider since Mick Doohan to, or no, the first rider since Valentino Rossi to accomplish uh, four straight victories in a row. The first time he had done it in the Premier Class, Lorenzo was reaching a pretty astonishing level of uh, consistency and speed. Now, his performances uh, in the previous three races have been, uh, well, a little bit dull. He'd been leading from the front and uh, basically pulling away, but this one, he was really made to work for it. And I remember thinking back to this at the time, David, that um, don't quite didn't quite appreciate when I was watching the race live just how well Lorenzo was riding because Rossi was putting absolutely everything, throwing everything at him to try and break him in the closing laps. And Lorenzo basically had a, a three or four second lead, I think, over his teammate. That came down to just over one second by the final lap. He didn't blink at all. He held his nerve. 
Yeah, I mean, it, uh, again, to an extent, it was almost like a uh, sort of a preview of, of what was to come. It was almost like uh, encapsulating uh, a, a lot of the season in in that the, there were these two riders uh, on the same bike using their different strengths to try to uh, uh, to to try sort of to try to get victory on this thing uh, to to try to win this thing and um uh, up until that point again there was a lot of pressure on rossi because um you know rossi was still leading the championship and he was looking he was looking good but um all of a sudden it's uh, it's valentino Ro it's you know lorenzo is is winning three in a row and it was a race which Rossi really really had to step up to uh, uh, to, to to try and address so it was it was really really important for him to to try and beat this and it was really um, uh, important for Lorenzo it was a it was a real battle of wills so some astonishing stuff from uh, Jorge Lorenzo there this round of course was uh, also quite notable for uh, Suzuki securing 1-2 in qualifying Alicia Spargaro uh, securing the uh, the brand's first pole position in MotoGP since 2007 Maverick Vinales the class rookie ably backing him up in second place those guys weren't quite able to match the that performance on Sunday but uh that was a sign of things to come, certainly from Vinales' side of the garage. We left uh, Barcelona with the two movie star Yamaha separated by just one point. Rossi 138 to Lorenzo's 137. Then we went to the home of Mr. Motomatos himself, Aston. Uh, yes, it, well, I would say it's, it's actually the home of um, uh, my uh, Dutch friend and colleague Peter Bomb because he actually lives uh, within uh, uh, within earshot of the track. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a the, the Assen always it always delivers because of because of the layout of the track and we had uh, a proper classic Assen uh, battle which went down uh, all the way uh, to to you know the last corner and more controversy. I'll ask I'll ask you a question, Dave, just about controversy and the Dutch TT twenty fifteen. This. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be blunt. The the worst decision ever made happened in the 2015 Dutch TT. They stopped putting it on the Saturday. <laughs> this was the last year where we had a Saturday race in Aston. It was a godsend for people working on a deadline. You suddenly had an extra 24 hours to get all your work done. That's right. actually the, uh, the one thing about having the race on the Saturday was. Um, uh, Everyone was always wandering around going, what day is it? And calling it Sunday or whatever, because um, you, you're used to when when you have 18 races, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then uh, you you think of whatever you happen to do. If it's qualifying, it must be Saturday. Oh, are we doing pre-event press conferences? It must be Thursday. Um, and so you, th th that's the way that you tell the days. And then like on Saturday, it was it was. And when you when you're talking to the riders, they're saying, um, um, uh, uh, yeah, well, obviously, you know, I, I wasn't very quick on I wasn't very quick on Saturday. Oh, I mean Friday, uh, because they've lost track of time as well. So uh, in the end, they had to get rid of the um, uh, they had to get rid of the Saturday because you know they wanted more attendance. They also they they wanted uh, sort of a, a better TV crowds, and it paid off. You know, the uh, attendance has grown and the and TV uh, viewership has uh, has grown as well. Quite often, it would quite it would clash with F1 qualifying, so that was uh, uh, that was that, that was difficult. 
Yeah, and I remember like the first year where I, I fully watched every race and every session live was 2000 because that was the first year where we really had Sky in the house and you were able to watch it. And uh, I remember I, I hit on what I thought was going to be qualifying on Saturday and then suddenly it was the race and I got this unbelievably pleasant surprise that uh, there was going to be a race on the Saturday instead. But, uh, you know, it was always one of those things that made Assen really unique and uh, really special for everyone. And it was quite cool to have something a little bit different. And, you know, Neil, there was a big change for this year as well, obviously, with, like I said earlier on, Marquez comes back with the 2014 chassis. And that's what really started to turn his season around. And this was a, a race where he looked much more competitive you know, Rossi's fast all the way through the weekend. He has his pole position. So this was one of those real standout races of the season. As Dave said earlier on, ends in a lot of controversy. But whenever I look back to the 2015 season, this is actually the race that is my favourite to watch because for every single lap, something was happening. I'm sure everyone uh, remembers just what happened on the final lap of uh, the Dutch Grand Prix 2015, that epic encounter between Marc Marquez and Valentino Rossi. Let's hear how it was called at the time. Marquez now closes up on Rossi. Rossi is particularly no stuff quick through these corners, up through the high hole to this vital Rumshark left-hander. Rossi still leads away. Has Marquez got anything left? He is going to come late as they come into the chicane. There's going to be a lunge. There'll be a lunge for Marquez. He's up the inside of Rossi. Oh, Rossi just holds for Rossi's through the gravel. Rossi's going to win the race. Valentino Rossi wins the Dutch TT. What a dramatic finale. Marquez second. Rossi is the winner. So obviously, it's not very often that uh, the post-race press conference is as entertaining or maybe even more entertaining than what we've just seen out in the track. But this, I think, was probably one of the best press conferences ever, certainly that I've seen, um, especially in the flesh. Because, uh, well, it was basically, I think, the first time that we saw Valentino and Mark sat next to each other sniping away and uh, having a few little barbs here and there and it was just uh, fantastic to watch it was great great viewing um, because you could just see this kind of wedge being driven between them with each comment that they were that they were making um, going back to the the final lap Dave uh, should Rossi have been penalized uh, no I don't think so I think it was uh, I think it was exactly the right call because um, Marquez came into the GT chicane I mean that chicane is getting into that chicane first is really important if you can get up uh, if you can get up the inside um, uh, then you can defend through the next uh, through the next part and it, it you could win the race there. Um, and Marcus had been accused of practicing this move all weekend, um, uh, you know, breaking uh, breaking late and trying to hold the inside line. And uh, I, I can't remember precisely, but I think he also tried it during practice on the, uh, during one of the practice sessions on somebody. And um, there was this idea that, you know, Mark was, uh, was actually actively trying to, practices of pushing some out, uh, uh, someone out of the way in that last corner so that uh, so that he could try and win the race there and um he tried it and um he got up the inside of rossi he he clearly hit rossi rossi was ne- left with nowhere to go and uh, except across the gravel trap and across the line first so uh it was um 
if Rossi had taken that line and there'd been no one else about, then yeah, absolutely, he should have been penalised. But um, he was sort of he had, he was forced into it by uh, by Marquez's mistake. So it was um, it, it seemed and seemed like justice to me. Yeah, well, for me, this race was like I said earlier on. It was forty minutes of pure drama between Rossi and Marquez that came down to the last fifteen seconds, and it was exactly what you want at somewhere like Aston. Because if you look at the last lap, Rossi edges away from Marquez in the middle sector of the lap, but then suddenly, Mark is right there with him, and the amount of speed that he carried through the Ramshook was. Incredible, And that's what sets up the move into the GT chicane. It's what gives him that chance to take the inside line. But for me, this was just one of those things. It was an incident that was always going to happen. And the the best thing afterwards was, like you said, Neil, the press conference where everyone's given their, their reasons and their validations of why they were right and wrong. And uh, you, you said it was the most entertaining press conference you can remember but it was probably the most entertaining press conference anyone can remember since Foggy and Keeley at Assen. And again, it was another one of those instances that was one rider won, one rider lost, and both riders were just wondering, what the hell are you complaining about? You put your bike in the wrong place, you made the mistake, and I just did what I had to do. And for me, Rossi was just super smart. He had used... I don't know, 20 years experience at Assen to understand that if someone puts their bike down the inside and you're in front, it's still your corner and you're not going to see it. So you're within rights just to jump through the chicane. And if you look at how early Rossi picks the bike up and gasses it, he had made his decision that if this happened, I'm just going to I'm just going to do do what I have to do. So it was one of those instances where no matter who won it, they were going to be right for their decisions. And whoever lost it didn't make the wrong decision. It was just a pure racing moment and a, a real incident that just flashes the reason that Mark is who he is and the reason that Rossi is who he is. Both riders were asked who was in the better position going into the final chicane in the pre and uh, post-race press conference. Rossi said, I remember I was in front. Maybe it was me. Mark said, I remember I was in the inside. Maybe it was me. And uh, cue much laughter in uh, the press conference room, and that was really only the start of it. Uh, Dave, what was uh, what was your memory of um, of that press conference? My memory of that press conference was actually Jorge Lorenzo being really, really funny because uh, he was just sitting back and enjoying the show, and then uh, um, wi- winding it up every now and again. Uh, you know, when when things looked like they might be getting a little bit a little slower, then he'd sort of you know add in his le- his own little barb. But um, I think one of my favourite quotes from um, uh, is from that press conference as well, which is when. Um, uh, Mark was asked what what did he learn through there and um, Marquez answers um, some motocross only this nothing more which uh, was just so sarky it was really um, uh, it, 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 it was it was proper it was proper entertaining it was as entertaining as the race yeah I thought uh there was another question that came after what you just mentioned, David, where both riders were asked, will this change your relationship? And Rossi doing the classic, I haven't done anything wrong. You know, what, what's all this drama about? Uh, sort of vintage Rossi pose was just like, no, I don't think so. And then Mark said, no, but, and then you could just see, I think it's something <laughs> that Mark would, would have dealt with completely differently now because he's obviously a lot more mature. But at that point, there was still 
I mean, it was just, a, it was a bruised ego, wasn't it? And he couldn't deal with the fact that uh, not only had Rossi beaten him, but everyone was thinking, oh, you know, Rossi was in the right. And he just couldn't let that lie. And he was like, no, uh, uh, it won't change our relationship. But, uh, well, no, I hope not. Maybe, it, I don't think it will outside the track, but maybe on the track. And, he, you know, he just couldn't have left couldn't have left it even more tantalizingly. And I think that was a real sign of just the, the kind of ego that Marquez had, where it was like he just couldn't let Rossi try and uh, outdo him in the press conference as he had done on the track before. Yeah, and what was interesting as well was Mark was talking in terms of, oh, well, I was right. I didn't leave the track. I finished the track. You know, I, I did the whole lap. And and then obviously after the press conference, because the press conference happens quite soon after the race. But after that, the riders then were brought up in front of Mike Webb because there was appeals made and they had to have everything discussed. And uh, Webb was talking in terms of, well, when you look at the head-on shot, it's quite difficult to really understand You know, who's in front, who's at fault. But when you look at the overhead shot, when you use the helicopter, it's clear as day. Rossi's in front all the way through the corner so there's no need for a punishment but Livio Supo then says yeah yeah that's fine it was just a race and instant there's you know nothing wrong with what happened but just remember one thing we've now set a precedent with this decision yeah I mean the, the other thing is that uh, I th- I can't remember if it was the year after, uh, if it was 2016 or 2017, Aston then changed the chicane. They uh, uh, put some hard standing there and I think they've put some some obstacles there. So it's now actually almost impossible to cut the, uh, uh, to, to cut that chicane now. It's a much more risky proposition to try and cut the pro, uh, to, to cut that chicane. So it's, it's one of those things, again, where a racing incident um, ends up actually physically changing the track because... Um, uh, basically, they just couldn't deal with the fallout of another one of these. And as we all know, ladies and gentlemen, that was certainly not the last that we saw of this uh, simmering feud between uh, two of the MotoGP greats in 2015 and indeed for many years after. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the first part of our review of 2015 in this uh, special edition of the uh, Paddock Pass podcast, Lockdown Mode. And uh, well, didn't quite know it at the time on that Saturday in the Netherlands, but Jorge Lorenzo actually was uh, fairly prescient with some of his words. Let's just listen to what Jorge had to say after that race was done. Jorge, looking at the championship now, uh, you think that this battle between uh, Mark uh, and Valentino can also help you? And uh, it might be also decisive uh, between you and Valentino for the championship? Well, if they had crashed today, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they would help me a lot, but they didn't crash, so didn't help me this time. Maybe, maybe in the future. I don't know. You never know. So that's us for the first uh, part of this 2015 review, in the special edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, Lockdown Mode, where we're going down memory lane, reviewing some vintage seasons from the past. We'll be back again with the second part of uh, 2015 uh, next week. So keep your eyes peeled on all your Apple listening devices, on uh, SoundCloud, as well as Spotify. Now, it's probably time to remind you that uh, you should be following us on our social media channels, facebook.com forward slash podcast, Twitter at paddockpasspod, and uh, make sure that you leave a couple of reviews which really uh, help other people find our show. Uh, I've been Neil Morrison. 
MotoGP journalist hosting this edition. And uh, well, I'd just like to say thank you very much to my uh, my colleagues, Mr. David Emmett. Thank you. And Mr. Steve English. Yeah, thanks very much, Neil. It's been a lot of fun. Been a lot of fun indeed. Reminiscing with both of you, Jensen. We'll be back again this time next week. So until then, bye-bye. I want, I want this on the record on the show in our little outtakes at the end. 2001 Space Odyssey is fucking shit. And no one will convince me of otherwise. I've heard so many people tell me, Oh, Steve, you just, you don't like the arts. You don't understand classic film. Well, I'll tell you what, I watch fucking everything. And Wrong. 2001 is crap. And the reason it's crap is because I sit there and I watch it and everyone tells me, Oh, just remember, this film was made in whatever year it was made and it was so advanced for its time and it was a great film for its time. But guess what? I didn't watch it in its time. I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago and was left incredibly disappointed. And no doubt, this is when Neil tells me it's the single greatest film ever made. And Dave's going to say, if I could watch one film on repeat for the rest of my life, it'd be 2001 Space Odyssey.